Let me add my welcome to Peter's, especially if it's your first time here. Uh, Really great to have you with us. So as Peter mentioned, um, during the month of October, we're preaching through this series all about the Reformation. And the reason we're doing it in October is that 500 years ago on this month, at the end of this month, the 31st of October, 1517 to be precise, a man called Martin Luther, a German monk, uh, nailed to the door of the cathedral in his hometown a list of 95 uh, statements or theses, 95 things he wanted to talk to the Roman Catholic Church about, issues he had, problems he had with the, their policy about the, uh, selling something called indulgences. Um, so he put these 95 statements up and they got taken down, printed and sent throughout Europe. And that one incident set into motion a, a train of events a movement, perhaps you could call it, which, we, which has become known as, as the Reformation. Essentially what it was, people across Europe uh, looked at their Bibles and rediscovered from the Bible what the central message of Christianity was all about, which had been obscured and covered over by the medieval church, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, but they opened their Bibles and they rediscovered the heart of Christianity. And the reason we're doing this series is because what they discovered was good news. We're not doing this series because we want to convert you into history buffs or because we've got a thing about German monks. We're doing it because we think that what they discovered is good news and we want to celebrate that. So this month is a month of celebration of what the reformers rediscovered from the Bible, a celebration of the gospel. So two weeks ago, we thought about um, the truth of the fact that because of the Reformation, we can love God and not fear him. Because of the truth that they rediscovered, we can know that God loves us and we can love him. Last week, we thought about how because of the Reformation, we can know God. We've got the Bible translated in our own language and ultimately we can know God through the person of Jesus. And this week, we're thinking about because of the truth uh, that the Reformers rediscovered, we can serve God. We're thinking about serving God, going out of ourselves, doing good works, loving our neighbour. And because of the Reformation, Because of what they discovered, we can serve God joyfully and we can serve God with our whole hearts. We can serve him truly as we were meant to. So this is a really important topic for us to be thinking about. And it's really important because we have a problem with doing good works. We have a problem with serving God. The problem is that we easily slip into a medieval mindset when it comes to doing good. A medieval way of thinking. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. So the medieval church taught that you have to do good to earn God's favour. To, to work your way towards salvation, you have to do good works. And very helpfully, the, the church uh, set up a, a list of things that you had to do, which included going to church, giving, doing mass, uh, confessing your sins, doing penance, perhaps going on pilgrimages. There was a whole list of good works you had to do to earn God's favour. So the way that people related to God in the Catholic Church was very conditional. God wants these things from you. You have to do them to get in his good books, to get brownie points, to earn his favour. And there's lots of people today who've never heard the message of Jesus, never heard the gospel, who, who think that's how it works still, who assume that what God really wants from us is good behaviour. And he's given us the Ten Commandments to tell us what he wants And if we keep them and we're a good person and we're nice and we help grannies across the road, then he'll give us the thumbs up and he'll reward us, either in this life with good things happening to us or 
with eternal life if you believe in that. If you don't do them, he'll punish you. So a lot of people believe that outside the church, but even in the church, as Christians, we can easily slip into this way of thinking where we relate to God in such a way that we think if we do good and follow the rules, that he's more happy with us, that he's more pleased with us. So we have a good day, and we've, uh, we've been loving towards someone, we've been kind to someone we don't get on with, we've spoken an encouraging word to a fellow Christian, we've done something really sacrificial, uh, which has blessed someone, perhaps we've shared our faith with someone who doesn't know Jesus, we've done something that we think is, is good and pleases God, and we think in the back of our minds, he's happy with me today, he's more pleased with me today because of what I've done, or we have a bad day. You do that thing that you promised yourself you'd never do again. You have an argument with your husband or wife or your child. You lose your temper. Perhaps you just haven't prayed for weeks. And at the back of your mind, you think, God's disappointed with me. Or he's angry with me. Or he's annoyed with me. He doesn't like me. I've gone down his favor. I've lost brownie points because of how I'm behaving. Can you see how we we slip into this way of thinking? This was kind of how I thought about... God in my early teenage years. So I grew up going to church. Um, I made a profession of faith at around 11 years old and put my hand up and said, I want to be a Christian. But basically, I thought that what God wanted from me from that point on was, okay, now you're a Christian. I want you to be a good Christian. I want you to be good. So I set about trying to be a good Christian, doing the things that good Christians do. Uh, So I, I tried to pray. I tried to read my Bible. I went to church. I listened really hard to all those sermons where it talked about being a loving person, being kind, being forgiving, being generous. And I, I tried to, had a little project, a self-improvement project. Tried to improve myself and be a good Christian, be a good person. Problem was, it didn't work. Didn't, I couldn't do it. I kept failing. But I thought that God would be more pleased with me if I did well. And therefore, when I didn't do well, I thought he was less pleased with me. So I kept on coming back to him saying sorry, asking for forgiveness, please give me a clean slate again, I'll start again, I'll try better next time. That was how I thought about being a Christian. And I think that happens because that's kind of what we experience in human relationships. Right from when we're children, we learn that human relationships are conditional. That if I want someone to be happy with me, I need to do certain things. And if I don't want them to be unhappy, I need to not do certain things. Whether it's the toddler who learns that if they play nicely and don't hit their friends, they'll get a smile and a well done from mummy or daddy, maybe a good boy, good girl. Whether it's the school child who who learns if they behave well and try their hardest, they'll get the certificate or the sticker. Whether it's the, the teenager who learns that if they want to be accepted by a certain group of friends, they need to behave in a certain way, say a certain kind of thing, present a certain kind of image to be, to be welcomed. And if they don't do those things, then they're frozen out. Or whether it's the husband or wife who learns in a marriage, if I want to have my needs met, I need to meet their needs. And if I don't, then they'll punish me, whether that's by sulking or getting annoyed you learn that life is tit for tat. Relationships are conditional. If I want something, if I want to please this person, I need to do certain things. That's what we learn from human relationships. And we then project that onto God. We think if I want to keep God happy, I need to keep his rules. I need to do certain things and not do certain things. And the thing is, whenever there are conditions in a relationship, there is pressure. So if you think, in order to keep this person happy, I've got to keep the rules. It creates pressure. I've got to, 
I've got to do what they want. I've got to meet their needs. And when we think about that relating to God, it creates pressure. If we think God is more pleased with us if we have a good day and less pleased with us if we had a bad day, it creates pressure. That's what I experienced growing up and being a teenager. Maybe you can relate to some of that. And that's what was going on in the medieval church. So now can you see why I say we easily slip into this kind of medieval mindset when it comes to doing good, being a good person, because that's what they experienced. They were taught you've got to do things to earn salvation. Therefore, because there were conditions, there was pressure. I've got to go to church. I've got to do confession. I've got to this, 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 this. And a really good example of that kind of pressure is Martin Luther. So if we look at his story, we find he experienced that. So when when Luther was in his early 20s, uh, he studied law. And uh, he was on a journey, and he was caught up in a storm. And there he is, uh, with the lightning striking right next to him. He was almost killed by a lightning strike, thrown to the floor. And from his position on the floor, he prayed out to St. Anne. And he said, if you can save me from this storm and keep me from dying, I'll give my life to be a monk in a monastery. He survived the storm, and true to his word, two weeks later, Luther was enrolled uh, in a monastery and living the life of a monk. And Luther, the young man, became obsessed by God's demands for righteousness. He became obsessed by God's requirements, God's law. I've got to do these things and not do other things. And it led him to a state of being uh, just crippled by, by despair and by fear and by pressure. It was just a, he just felt this pressure from God to live a certain way. But something changed. He read his Bible. And particularly, Luther's study of two books, Romans and Galatians and, and the Psalms as well, led him to a discovery. And this discovery that he made completely changed the way that he thought about God, the way that he thought about salvation, and particularly his understanding of good works and serving God. So he describes this discovery in terms that I think are really helpful in his commentary on the book of Galatians. I really recommend, if you want to dig into a bit more of Luther, get hold of a a, a copy of his commentary on Galatians and and read it, particularly the introduction. It's so helpful. But he talks about um, righteousness in two, uh, two different terms. He distinguishes between two types of righteousness. And first of all, he said there's active righteousness. Okay, So active righteousness is the kind of righteousness that we do. So it might be a legal righteousness, keeping the law of the land government. It might be moral righteousness, keeping God's law. It might be what he calls ceremonial righteousness, which is kind of traditions, whether it's family traditions or church traditions. And active righteousness is what we do. And he said active righteousness belongs to the realm of the world, the earth. But he says there's another kind of righteousness, and he calls that passive righteousness or Christian righteousness. And this kind of righteousness belongs in heaven. And he said it belongs to God and it's given to us as a gift. He says it's passive because we don't do anything to achieve it. We're not active. We just receive. So here's a quote from from Luther from his, his commentary on Galatians. Here we work nothing, render nothing to God. We only receive and permit someone else to work in us, namely God. Therefore, it is appropriate to call the righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness, passive. So what Luther saw was that if you pursue this active righteousness, that can only condemn. The righteousness of the law 
can only condemn us. We all fall short. That's what Luther found from his experience. That's what I found from my experience as a teenager. But Luther found the answer in the gospel, in God's passive righteousness given to us as a gift and received by faith. So here's another quote from him. The afflicted conscience has no remedy against despair and eternal death, that's where he was, except to take hold of the promise of grace offered in Christ. That is, this righteousness of faith, this passive or Christian righteousness. This is the righteousness of Christ and of the Holy Spirit, which we do not perform, but receive, which we do not have, but accept, when God the Father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. And the thing that hit Luther like a a train was that this righteousness is free and it's unconditional. You don't do anything to receive it. It It's not given to us because we've had a good day or a bad day because we're particularly proficient at keeping the law. It's a gift. It's unconditional. It's free. And this insight Luther had completely changed his view of good works. And it completely changes our view of good works and where they fit in the Christian life. So to see that, I'd like us to turn to a passage in the New Testament. And this is one of the places where we see this whole idea of of good works flowing from the gospel most clearly. So it's on, handily, page 999, which I'm quite uh, pleased by. So page 999 in these these black church Bibles, uh, emergency call for Titus um, and chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, please grab it and turn to Titus 3. While you're doing that, a little bit of background. This is a letter written by Paul to one of his followers, um, Titus, who was leading a church um, in a place called Crete. And he wrote this letter towards the end of his life to to give Titus some instructions for how to lead the church, how to manage the church, what his priority should be as a leader. So It's a really um, fascinating letter. Um, I'd like us to look just at the first uh, eight verses of of chapter 3. So first of all, let's just read... Verses 1 and 2. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them, he says, that is remind the people in Titus's church, uh, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So what Paul's saying there is basically uh, be a good citizen in the world. Up to this point, his focus has been on behavior in the church, and now he's talking about behavior outside of the church. He's saying, obey the, obey the government, basically. Obey the people who are in authority over you, and uh, be ready for every good work. Be a good citizen. Be ready to do good in society, in the community, out there. Don't speak evil of anyone. Avoid quarreling. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Sounds like what Paul's saying is, behave well. Be a good Christian. Sounds like he's, he's adding law for them to follow, doesn't it? Well, let's have a look at what he says in verse, verse 3. The reason that Paul gives for uh, being good and doing good works in, in society. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing washing of 
regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what reason does Paul give for why they should do good? He takes them back to the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel, and this is what the reformers rediscovered. This is what Luther was talking about. What were we? What was our past? We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Isn't that a good description of everyone in our natural state without God's work and us slaves to passions? We just do what we want. We, we can't help it. We, we follow our own desires. We're slaves. We're not free. We need a saviour. And look at what God did, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Why? Because of his goodness and his love. On what basis? Not because of our works, but because of his mercy. It's got nothing to do with what we do or don't do. It's God's grace. It's his mercy. It's his free gift in Jesus. How? He does it by giving us new birth, literally recreating us, regenerating us by the Holy Spirit. And what's the result? Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is just what Luther was saying. This is what Luther discovered. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work for righteousness. God gives it to us. It's a gift. Just imagine with me for a moment you're an orphan. Imagine you're in an orphanage, say, let's say 150 years ago, and you're in this orphanage with all these children, and you're desperate to get out and find a home. And every now and then, couples come around the orphanage, and they, they look for children to adopt. It's never you. And one day you're called into the director's office and he says, you're in luck. A couple wants to adopt you. Pack your bags, you're heading off tomorrow. You go back to your room, pack your suitcase, your heart's beating with excitement. You get driven out of the orphanage in a car, out through the big iron gates into the world, drive out into the countryside. Car turns left down a big drive, a gravel drive, round the corner, and there's the biggest house you've ever seen. And the grounds are huge, and your jaw drops. You get led inside, you meet the parents, they smile at you, give you a hug. They've got no other children, they sit you down. And they say, we want to take this adoption thing seriously, we're in this for real. We've written you into our will. We're not going back on this. You're our child, for good. For, from this point on, if we die, all of this is yours. All of our riches, all of our land, this home, it's all yours. You're our child, whatever you do. However good you are, however much you mess us around, however, however bad you are, You're our child. You're here to stay. Imagine that. You've done nothing to earn that. You've not been active at all. You've just received it. You're a completely passive person. You've just received from those those that that couple. That's what Luther's saying is happening here. That's what the Bible is saying is happening here in the gospel. When When we become a Christian, we're adopted by God, not through anything we've done. And we receive his wealth we receive the righteousness of jesus given to us credited to us we receive the the relationship of jesus with his father as our own relationship with god that's who that's who we are that's what the gospel does and more than that we we literally move in with him we become his children we are relocated from where we are in in the earthly realms into heaven Uh, the bible says literally we're seated in the heavenly places with jesus 
Just like we're rehomed from an orphanage into that mansion, we are relocated from earth into the heavenly places with Christ. Our status is secure, and it's independent of what we do. Our status is fixed with Jesus. So this is what Luther saw. This is what what Paul said. And have a look at what's next in verse 8. This is really um, interesting for for our subjects. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So verses 4 to 7 in the original language are one sentence. And we think that may have been a kind of early Christian kind of creed which people recited to remind themselves about the doctrines of salvation. So Paul's reciting it here saying, this saying I've just quoted is trustworthy. He gives it his stamp of authority. He says, I want you to insist on these things. Teach this message of the gospel. Keep it central in your church, Titus. Don't move on from this. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So Paul wants Titus to keep this gospel message central so that people devote themselves to good works. And what's the reason he wants them to do good? These things are excellent and profitable for people. He doesn't say do good because it's profitable for God. God doesn't need our good works. He's already said that. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. God doesn't need our good works, but people do. So give. So do good. Because it's excellent and because it profits people. And because your status is secure in Jesus, you have the freedom to give. You have the freedom to do good wherever the need arises. So this makes all the difference to how we approach good works as a Christian, how we approach serving God as a Christian. And there's two implications of this this truth, of this gospel that I want to draw out that that Luther saw in his writings that I think really are helpful for us. So implication number one, because of the gospel, we're free to do good joyfully without pressure. So because we know our status is secure in heaven with Jesus, we're free to do good joyfully. So here's Luther again. When I have this righteousness within me, thanks, this, this heavenly righteousness, this passive righteousness, I descend from heaven like the rain that makes the earth fertile. That is, I come forth into another kingdom and perform good works whenever the opportunity arises. In short, whoever knows for sure that Christ is his righteousness cheerfully and gladly works in his calling for he knows that God wants this and that this obedience pleases him so if we know we're saved if our status is fixed and secure we have the freedom to give and to serve joyfully without pressure the pressure's off because it doesn't make any difference to our eternal status we can serve him cheerfully and gladly one of the things I love um, hearing is the stories of people's conversions, how people come to know Jesus. Um, I love hearing about um, where people were and where they are and what God did in their lives. And one of the things that you often find conversion stories have in common is people talking about this idea of a burden being lifted. I felt like a weight was off my shoulders. It was no longer down to me to please God. I knew that he loved me unconditionally. And I can kind of see a little bit of that in my own Story. I remember an incident just after I became a Christian. Um, really clearly, I was on a, a camp, 
and I was in a meeting and we'd been singing and I was, my mind was just full of God's unconditional love and how amazing it was to be his child. I left the meeting a little bit early because I wanted a bit of space to think and I remember walking out of that meeting and perhaps for the first time in my life thinking, uh, praying to God and talking, saying, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Uh, wherever you want me to serve, I want to serve you. And it wasn't because I needed to or because I thought I should, as I'd been used to thinking. It was because I, want, I wanted to, because I knew that he loved me. I knew I was secure in his love. I remember walking out of that meeting and just before I turned left into the dormitories, there was a, a, a group of ki- uh, kids sitting under the shed um, and they were kind of, Slightly on the fringes, you know, the group of rebellious kids that often come to these kind of camps. I think they might have been smoking. And I just felt God prompt me and say, go over and chat to them. Okay, if you want to serve me, go over and chat to them. So I did. I went over and just talked to them. I hadn't chatted to them yet in the week and we had a nice conversation, got to know them a bit. Nothing amazing happened. They didn't fall down on their knees and say, we want to become Christians. But the point was, I did that not because I felt I should, but because I knew I was secure and I knew that God loved me. And that made me want to serve him. When, when, our, when we know that our righteousness is in Christ, Luther says we are free to serve God cheerfully and gladly. And we're free to try things that we wouldn't normally try. I remember another incident when I was a student. I was quite involved in the Christian Union. And um, we were trying something new. There was a, a new course that we were planning um, to try and follow up from one of the mission weeks we, we had done and I was a little bit uh, unsure about it. It was a bit risky. It was different to what we'd done before. And I was a bit cautious about whether this was a good idea. I was thinking through everything that could go wrong, like I tend to. And uh, a, a, one of the church leaders who was helping us think through this event said something really helpful. He said, as a Christian, you've got permission to fail. You've got permission to fail because you're secure. It doesn't matter if this event goes wrong. It doesn't matter if it succeeds. It doesn't make a difference to how God feels about you. It doesn't matter one bit. You've got permission to fail. We've got permission to fail as we go out and think about doing good in the world, reaching out to our neighbour, loving people around us. We've got freedom to try different things we wouldn't normally try. You can go over and chat to that person that you wouldn't normally chat to. You can arrange to meet up for coffee or a drink with those people you wouldn't normally meet up with. You can invite into your home for dinner that family that you wouldn't normally feel comfortable with. You can bless and serve and give to people that you wouldn't normally bless and serve and give. You've got freedom to do it, not knowing how they're going to respond. It might be a risk, but you've got permission to fail. We've got freedom to serve God cheerfully and gladly where he calls us because our our status is secure in Jesus. That's the first thing. Second implication that Luther saw was that the gospel frees us to focus on the needs of others and not ourselves. Here, Here he is again. Um, Luther says this, man needs none of these things for his righteousness and salvation. That is good works. Doesn't need them. Therefore, he should be guided in all his works by this thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and advantage of his neighbor. So here's the thing. If we think we need to be good to earn God's favor, when we do a good deed, we're going to be thinking about ourselves. If you think, I need to do good to keep God pleased with me, when you do good, you're thinking, how does this affect my status? Is he more pleased with me because I'm doing this? How does it affect me? Just here's a little experiment. Think back to a, a good deed that you might have done in the last week. Anything you've done, something good, something kind, something loving, something generous. Now just imagine yourself doing that with God watching you and judging you. And imagine you think 
that doing that good deed makes God more pleased with you? Where's your focus? Where's your attention as you're doing that thing? It's on yourself. How does this affect my status with God? Now, rewind in your, in your mind and imagine yourself doing that good thing, completely secure in knowing God's love for you and with the, the object of your, of your attention entirely on the person and their need. Imagine yourself doing the good deed with your, your focus fixed on your neighbour, the person that you're giving to. Don't those two things feel quite different? Doesn't that feel better the second way around? When the object of our attention is the person in need, our neighbour, and not ourselves. It's so much more freeing, so much more joyful. I think one of the effects of this teaching, that we're free to focus on our neighbour and not ourselves, um, in the Reformation, was, was how good works were defined. So in the medieval church, good works were defined mainly in the church. Stuff that you did religiously, confession, sacraments, pilgrimage, that kind of stuff. But with this insight from Luther, he says, we should be guided, considering nothing except the need and advantage of our neighbour when we do good. With that in mind, suddenly the arena in which good works operates breaks out beyond the walls of the church. And this is what happened in the Reformation. There was a drive to push people outwards into the world because that's where our neighbours are. That's where the need is. So we want to meet needs, which pushes us out into the world. And suddenly, everywhere became a place you could do good works including people's callings and their vocations and the jobs God had called them into. And this completely changes how we think about our work. When we think, God's calling me to bless, God's calling me to serve, God's calling me to things that are excellent and profitable for people, not because it makes any difference to how he feels about me, but because I get to do good. I've got freedom. I've got freedom to do whatever and it doesn't affect how God feels about me, so I want to use that freedom to just bless and do what's profitable for people. I, think, I remember an example of this for me in my job. I used to work as a wind turbine um, consultant. And I uh, one time had to go and do a talk at a conference in Germany. And it was way above what I should have been doing. A colleague of mine was invited and couldn't do it. So I kind of stepped in for him. And I remember getting there and seeing all these people. And there were these sort of people in the industry that were really experienced. And there's a kind of like sort of jostling for attention at these conferences and trying to push yourself forward and a bit of competition and trying to say something that's clever and I just I was feeling the pressure feeling anxious what have I got to say at this at this conference I'm going to be shown up and uh, there was a moment in my preparation when I thought to myself do you know what I'm not going to think about myself I'm going to try and think about how I can bless these people I'm going to try and think about what I'm saying in this talk is going to benefit them I'm not going to try and compete. I'm going to try and do something that will do them good. And that little moment just completely changed how I felt about the conference. Suddenly I looked forward to it. I had motivation to prepare my slides. I looked forward to the session. I I prayed for them. I said, Lord, would this bless what they're doing? Would it help them in their job? Would it benefit the industry? When you see your job as an opportunity to do good and profit people, it completely changes things. When you're secure and you know you're loved, you can do good and it becomes real good. So how does your job bless people? With some vocations, it's easier than others. They're obviously caring professions, teachers, nurses, that kind of thing. But even bankers, engineers, your job is doing good somewhere, whether it's creating wealth to fund services, whether it's, whether it's benefiting the economy in some way. Your job blesses people. Think about how you can bless people in your work. It will completely change how you think about your job. And that's what God's calling us to. Not because it changes in one 
little bit how he feels about us. But because we get to, because we get freedom to serve, freedom to do what's excellent and profitable for people. So our status before God doesn't depend on our good works. We're not medieval. It doesn't change how he feels about us one bit. He's not more pleased with us if we do good. He's not disappointed with us if we do bad. Our righteousness is passive and it's in heaven. We are, we are with Jesus in the heavenly places. And because we're there, we get to descend and do good whenever the opportunity arises. So, let's get out there. Let's be a church that does good. Let's be a church that does as much good as we can. Let's be a church that's ready to take the opportunity to serve and to bless and to give and to love our neighbour. But let's do it knowing that it doesn't affect one bit how God feels about us. It doesn't affect that one bit because we're secure and we know we're loved unconditionally in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you. Thank you so much for the truths that the reformers rediscovered uh, 500 years ago, the truths of the Bible that just blow us away. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your kindness and your goodness which sent your son Jesus to save us. And thank you for the wonderful privilege of being adopted into your family and knowing that we are heirs with the hope of eternal life. Father, thank you. And would these things drive us outwards? Would the freedom that we have in you be used for good, knowing that it doesn't make any difference to how you feel about us? Would we serve, would we bless, would we love, knowing the joy that comes from being free and not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others. Father, we pray you do this in us for the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.